To say that Nankerville was something of a, a character would be a massive understatement. He was born as Reginald Nankivell, Ill illegitimate, gay and in difficult circumstances into a family of modest means in Christchurch in 1898. He died, as you can see here, as Sir Rex de Sharonbach Nankivell Esquire in London in June 1977. He charmed his way through life, elaborating on his achievements, or sometimes his lack of them, with brio, all the while amassing a personal fortune as a leading modern art dealer and creating a collection of almost incomprehensible richness. Since 1959, we've been lucky enough to own this treasure trove. Acquired for a very modest price, uh, considering its immense financial and historic value, the first part of the collection was formally acquired by the library after almost a dozen years of complex negotiations. Nankerville had placed 1,300 items, uh, key collection items, with the library from 1948, chastened by his wartime bombing experiences during the Blitz and the looming Cold War. The £70,000 Nankerville received for its acquisition was channelled back into more... Uh, channel back into thousands more purchases which came to us more or less continuously from 1959 to the year of his death. This further enriched what was already a truly remarkable overview in pictorial, map, manuscript, object and in printed form of our part of the world. <clears throat> to say that Nankerville liked portraits is also something of an understatement. He acquired thousands of them to illustrate his maverick publication, Portraits of the Famous and Infamous New Zealand, Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific, 1492 to 1970. He laboured over this project with his collaborator and fellow New Zealander, Sidney Spence, for more than 20 years. Almost exact contemporaries, he and Spence were born in the same year, 1898, and Spence died a year after him in 1978. Spence was a book dealer who lived in London and had written bibliographies on Cook, Bly and Antarctica, amongst other things. The book, which has recently been digitised by the library, is an autodidact's fantasy. Finally self-published at huge expense in 1974, it attempted to catalogue in encyclopaedic form the famous and infamous of our part of the world. Nankerville contrasted the famous, whose activities he said foresaw, discovered, opened up and settled our region, with the infamous, whose contributions had been chiefly romantic, dramatic and sometimes historic. Into this curiously defined grab bag of characters, he inserted the famous cartographer Abraham Ortelius, who you can see on the screen here on the left, King George III, Captain James Cook, Sir Joseph Banks, the celebrated missionary of the Pacific, John Williams, and the social reformer and Quaker, Elizabeth Fry, no doubt all as famous listings. Conversely, he collected characters such as Arthur Orton, the infamous Tichborne claimant, and Edward Gib Gibbon Wakefield, father of systematic colonisation, and convicted kidnapper, alongside bushrangers and the celebrity convict pickpockets George Barrington and Ike Solomon. All of these characters are featured in the exhibition. Fifty portraits in different media have been distilled from thousands to give the public an introduction to the extraordinary reach and resonance of Nankerville's collection and to his obsessiveness as a collector. But what was the purpose behind this publication? Was it the author's desire to present a collection of approved images of an elite that had in some way colonised our part of the world? Was it to set before us works of art, portraits, which were in some way instructional, 
or was it felt that exposure to selected portraits would be to our betterment somehow through some form of osmosis occurring while empathising with those depicted? Perhaps the portraits could, would be seen as useful examples of the kind of noble forebears that we should be inspired by and seek to emulate. Or was it rather an attempt to provide pictorial and historic evidence of the broad range of characters that had contributed in acknowledged and unacknowledged ways to our history? A visual dictionary of sorts. This, I think, is the most compelling way of viewing such a maverick publication and collection. In granular detail, the book puts before us the names of thousands of individuals or groups of people as evidence of their achievements and their collective contribution to our past. Some characters were catalytic, like Ortelius, Columbus, Cook, Major Mitchell or Leichhardt. Others were more hidden from our gaze. People such as those seen here, the resilient child survivor of a Maori ma massacre, Betsy Broughton, the the vengeful, vengeful Maori chief, Tepi Kupi, and the Maori woman and child, Amoko, Iana and Hepi, illustrate the achievements made by people whose names are virtually lost to us now. Or they may represent extraordinary adventures happening to ordinary people. Less than one-fifth of the individuals listed are illustrated in the book for reasons of space and cost. I think the purpose was more about placing people in some sort of context, providing proof that they had existed in some cases, rather than collecting them just to show them off for public betterment, as, say, the National Portrait, in Ga uh, National Portrait Gallery in London might have done in its earlier days. It is an interesting aside, though, to note that Nankerville had many friends through his art-dealing business that were celebrities. Charles Lawton, John Gilgood, John Mills, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Attenborough, the artist Duncan Grant and his partner, the poet Paul Roche, the Earl of Sandwich, Henry Moore, Ben Nicholson and Graham Sutherland, many other artists of the day and key figures of the... Uh, many other artists and key figures of the day were his friends. So he was part of the world of the celebrity, but I think the motives for the portraits book were more long-lasting, historically resonant and deep-seated, stretching back to his youthful interest in the accounts and evidence of voyaging and discovery. He had gazed at the world from isolated Christchurch and his youthful imagination had been fuelled by the books he had read. Famous and infamous accounts, no doubt. <clears throat> Australian libraries have been the great collecting place for portraits of those that came before us. And it's worth remembering that the original National Portrait Gallery was formed by the library through its collection and its groundbreaking exhibitions at Old Parliament House in early 1994. The first exhibition was as you can see here, about face, aspects of Australian portraiture, 1770 to, 19, uh, 1770 to 1993, curated by Anne Loxley with art historian Daniel Thomas as curatorial consultant. It featured the portrait of Betsy Broughton, which you've just seen and which is in the exhibition downstairs. Australia's fascination with portraits continues. Look no further than the yearly Archibald Fracar in Sydney or other portraiture competitions that now exist around Australia, and the great popular success of the NPG here since its opening in late 2007. It seems that Nankerville was in some respects ahead of the game in deciding that portraits were both attractive to people, illustrative of our interesting past, and worthy of serious investigation by assembling them in what is still a useful database of imagery, even if it did take him 20 years to do so, and is not without faults as a volume. However, I'm reminded of the quote by Falcon and Madan, who, who was in charge of the Bodleian Library at Oxford from 1912 to 1919. 
He wrote, It is better to bring out an imperfect book, if it is a useful one, and the result of hard work, than by straining after an unattainable completeness to delay indefinitely its publication. I think this could be usefully applied to Nan Cavell and Spencer's book, especially after the long journey to complete it. I should also say that part of my desire to curate this exhibition, other than that it, that it brought me closer to understanding aspects of Nan Cavell's collecting, was to expose some of the extraordinary portraits held in his collection and which are not currently on loan to the National Portrait Gallery or the National Gallery uh, or on display here and to hint thereby at the richness of his collection and the scale and arduous nature of this epic and curious publishing project. Rex Nankervell escaped his family problems, shamed and fled to the First World War in late 1916. The opportunity to separate himself from his past and from the shores of New Zealand meant that he could create a new, sophisticated, man-of-the-world persona as a friend to the rich and famous, but also that he could not look backwards. He invented stories of his family's illustrious pioneering past as early settlers in the Canterbury area and collected images of them or of people that might be them. <coughs> That's the curious part of it. Here we can see portraits he said were his forebears, the hardy Robert and William Nankervell, brothers who arrived in New Zealand in 1840. William, with the axe, was a surveyor in the Canterbury area. Robert moved to Auckland, then to Australia. These early indomitable settlers, uh, as he referred to them, were very important to him and he included them uh, as in these images in his portrait book, thereby proclaiming his pedigree or provenance and placing himself and his family in good company. The fact that he found out that he was illegitimate and only related them to them on his mother's side, it seems propelled him to leave Christchurch, to head into the unknown and to seek his fortune. Rubbing shoulders in this book with famed explorers, kings and queens of the Pacific and Europe, knights, politicians, social reformers and the scientific elite obviously appealed to him. However, while this might be seen as an elaborate form of uh, social climbing, I think it seems more likely that his tireless labour and great financial commitment to the publishing project would, would be motivated by potential social attainment alone. Nankervell's gradual processes of reinvention helped to secure his public past as a man with roots, heritage and a productive colonial past, something that could override his illegitimacy and homosexuality in the public eye. The, this reinvention also meant that he could never risk returning to New Zealand and being unmasked, despite entreaties over decades to visit as a special guest of the government, nor did he visit Australia, um, gently declining numerous requests from Prime Minister Menzies and Harold White. I now want to make a few observations on the book itself. Portraits of the Famous and Infamous is the wellspring for the exhibition and also the documentation <coughs> and culmination of a life's work of collecting, of correspondence and research. Here on one double-page spread are illustrated Edward Gibbon Wakefield, Charles Darwin, the King and Queen of Hawaii, artist Conrad Martins, Napoleon, Captain Cook, architect Francis Greenaway, and keeping good company, of course, William Nankervell again. <laughs> a rather random assortment of characters, it appears, which gives a sense of his random placement of images throughout the book. To self-publish a volume on the scale of portraits of the famous and infamous, one would need to have had very deep pockets, 
an obsessive eye for detail, a knowledge of bookbinding and book production techniques, a boundless thirst for knowledge and for imagery that was not clearly in the public domain, and a good set of long-suffering colleagues and friends to rely on and to assist when necessary. One would also need a very good secretary. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of typed letters seeking portraits, images and biographical details of those to be included. Nankerville had all of these requisites covered. After labouring on the book for decades, he wrote in late 1975 after the book's publication to the library's Pauline Fanning, principal librarian in Australian reference, saying that the cost of producing the volume was simply astronomical. He had wanted to make, he said, an interesting and useful book and making money from it was not a consideration. Still, it cost him more than he could possibly have imagined. He specifies a cost of £33,569 to Pauline Fanning. The accuracy of this figure says something about Nankville's record-keeping capability and his ability to both afford and to record the many costs, major and minor, over decades. £33,000-odd pounds would equate to something probably like three hundred to $400,000 today, a very substantial sum indeed for a book. Pauline Fanning, in her reply letter, was clearly gobsmacked by the price mentioned. Nankerville had the mind of an accountant in some respects, which, without appearing to denigrate art dealers, I think is a characteristic that separates the successful ones from those that go under. Accounting for income, expenses and liabilities was key to his success. His profitable Redfern Gallery business funded his extraordinary collection development and his lifestyle of fast cars, Bentleys mainly, it seems, gifts to his friends and comfortable properties in the UK and his huge estate in Tangier later in life. But one might speculate that, on a bad day, plagued by chronic arthritis as he was, and at the end of this massive undertaking, which must have stretched both the limits of publication and of friendship, that he must have seen the portraits book as something of a liability. However, that said, perhaps the defining characteristics of a successful entrepreneur, scholar, collector, banker or author are risk-taking, self-belief and ultimately a belief in the utility of the final outcome, whether it be a business, collection, surplus of funds or a magnum opus like the portraits book. In Nankerville's case, he could not have laboured for 20-plus years without the belief that the book would be both a success and the sort of volume that every library and every Australian, New Zealander and Englishman seriously interested in the history of our part of the world would have to have on their bookshelf, as difficult as that might be to accommodate it due to its large format and considerable bulk, and you can see it sitting at the front here. The fact that copies of the book published in a limited print run of 1,400 copies can still be purchased relatively easily at prices from about $20 to $250 suggests that it may not have been the great publishing success that Nankerville had hoped for. The cost of production wasn't nearly covered by sales. The price of the volume seems to have been £8, though figures between £10 and £30 are mentioned in his papers. My recently procured copy of the book is here if anyone wants to look at it at the front and get a better sense of the scope and the illustrations and the size of the volume. Uh, the book lists as its distributors the National Library Canberra and the famous antiquarian dealers Mags Brothers and Francis Edwards, both based in London. Nankerville had very strong relationships with both of the latter companies, having purchased thousands of items from them over decades and had become very friendly with Frank Mags and his son John both of whom he includes in the book, though without images. 
Nankerville also lists Herbert Edwards, uh, as seen here in this letter from Francis Edwards, the company, in his volume as an incomparable compiler of catalogues dealing with Australasia and the Pacific. The other distributor was BT Batsford, Brookvale, Sydney, which seems to have been a Sydney-based offshoot of established British publisher Batsford, founded in 1843 and specialising in definitive books for the serious enthusiast and professional. It transpired ultimately that neither the National Library nor Batsford chose to handle the volume when they reviewed the distribution arrangements, decisions which must have cost Nangabel sale. <clears throat> the inclusion of his friends and associates in the book is another of Nankerville's peccadilloes in crafting its content and in shaping its, his version of history. It seemed an odd thing to do to some who were privy to his decision, but it was, I think, his way of publicly thanking those that had helped him and stuck with the project over decades. I think he felt it also brought the book up to date, in keeping with its ambitious title range of 1492 to 1970, from Columbus right up to Rex and his associates, and in time his contemporaries would not appear so out of place. With the exception of Sidney Spence, as seen here, Images aren't included of the many associates listed. Nan Cavell does list four portraits of himself, but only includes these two images. One significantly featuring his business partner and great friend, the Australian Harry Tatlock Miller, top, top right. Um, the images at the very back of the book. He chose not to push himself forward, it seems. He also lists the bibliographer John Ferguson, Rex and Thea Renitz, uh, who produced a pictorial history of Australia. Dorothy Searle, a beloved uh, Redfern Gallery partner. Bibliophiles George and Alice McInnes from Sydney. Librarians Phyllis Manda Jones and Pauline Fanning. Politicians Sir Robert Menzies and Sir Alistair McMullen. National Librarian Harold White. Collectors Ken Webster and Biani Kropelian. The National Library's liaison officer Bill Torrington. And distant relative May Casey and her husband Richard and also ornithologist Keith Hindwood. The book is in some respects a time capsule of names, a modest who's who of the cultural life in Australia and the UK. A few statistics about this labour of love might also be helpful to get an idea of the book's scope and complexity from a research and production point of view. There are, in total, 2,045 listings of people, places, events and groups. I know because I counted them laboriously. Nan Cabell rather overestimated that there were 4,000, something he was prone to do on occasion. Many listings have multiple portraits catalogued, some have only one. Still, this means that Nan Cabell and Spence managed to track down several thousand portraits to be entered. The alphabetical characterisation of portraits is both elastic and eccentric. They might be noted figures such as Matthew Flinders, Magellan or Lola Montes, or the Polynesian gods Tangaroa and Tairi, or Vanuka, the Maori deity shown in carved wooden form. Travel artist Augustus Earle's dog Jemmy even received his own listing. However, subjects, categories like the French encyclopedists, missionaries and convicts all get a mention as well, along with grouped entries like Australia's debt to the British Navy, the conquest of the Blue Mountains, pioneers of the medical profession and fathers of Christianity in Australia. Pacific Island groups are also mentioned alphabetically with portraits of them catalogued. 
It is a truly Catholic assortment of people, places and names. Indigenous people feature strongly in the mix, particularly portraits of Aboriginal people and Maoris, but also of Hawaiians as seen here and those of people from Tahiti. Women, often appended as the wife or associate of someone, also feature strongly where a portrait exists. For example, Sophia Banks, Mrs Elizabeth Bly and Lady Jane Franklin, who you can see here. There are, five, there are 356 illustrations with 60 of them in colour, part of the reason for the great expense incurred at the time in producing the book, along with the very expensive paper, the book's format, its cover and its binding. Some of the people listed have expansive entries written on them, some have virtually nothing. Clearly, in some cases, the job of chasing historical figures led almost nowhere, but the people were included anyway. For a book that runs to 332 pages and lists encyclopedically so many prominent and obscure figures, it has precious few words of introduction or extended commentary on the ambitious scope of the project within. There is no overarching narrative, as we like to have now, to interpret the book and its thesis. In only 400 words, the book is simply introduced. The text is dated 1970. The book was published in late 1974. The hiatus between writing the forward and actual production, I think, hints at the issues they were having getting the book finished, threatened by the monthly escalating costs, which clearly troubled Nan Cavell. This can be seen reflected in the copious correspondence that exists with prospective uh, printers, suppliers, contributors and other interested parties held in Nan Cavell's papers here in manuscripts. Luckily, Sidney Spence was obsessive too. The self-published bibliographer and author of other works, it seems, may, it seems he may have seeded the idea, at least in part, for the publishing project in the first place. In 1952, Spence had listed 88 portraits as an appendix to one of his bibliographies of early Australian printed material. This germ of an idea, and I believe the impressive legacy of Australian bibliographer Sir John Ferguson, whose massive undertaking to record all Australian early books, seems to have inspired Nankervell in his quest. Nankervell and Ferguson corresponded, and the former always received Ferguson's next bibliographic volume with great relish and praise. From the mid-1950s, Nankervell and Spence were in regular contact about their project. As you can see from this 1968 telegram, Nankervell couldn't have done the project without Spence, nor without the dedicated contributions of staff at the National Library, State Library of New South Wales and other state libraries that were asked for information on portraits held in their collections. <coughs> there are many letters in Nankervell's papers attesting to the assistance of librarians and fellow collectors. There is also positive feedback on the draft portraits volume, which he circulated widely in 1962 to test the waters and to seek corrections and further inclusions. Spence, it seemed, worked hard writing the biographical entries and chasing up provenance and images as well. In a letter to Nan Cavell in Tangier dated 18 April 1968, he says, he's been working continuously on the text and made some new discoveries completed a cross-reference for the entries and hopes to finish the following week. This, some six years before the book was even printed. Spencer's ongoing role in the project is not greatly mentioned in Nan <coughs> by Nan Cavell when writing to people chasing up entries or images. Perhaps he felt that as he was funding it and as he was writing the letters, he was clearly the owner of the project. Their names, though, were jointly inscribed for posterity on the front cover and on the title page. How Spence felt about it all is not recorded, but they seem to have remained on good terms throughout a long ordeal. 
and Nankervell left him £1,000 in his will. Nankervell agonised over the title of the book, thinking that portraits of the famous and infamous might be too gimmicky, he said. It's not recorded what Spence thought. He mightn't have got a vote at all, I suspect. But certainly the final title was better than the mad possibility of primogenitors of Terra Australis, which he <laughs> scribbled on a note in his papers. In the foreword to the book, Nankerville and Spence write regarding its scope. We have rejected no medium at all, including portrait illustrations from books and photographs where a photograph is the only known portrayal, in order to, in order to make the listing as complete as possible. The portraits include the early philosophers, cartographers, navigators, explorers, statesmen, home and colonial, churchmen, missionaries, authors, artists, political and social reformers, legal and criminal personalities, emigrants, naval and military governors and officials and some who earned the double sobriquet of famous and infamous. They continue, it is inevitable that further research will find more portraits. These will be collected and published in a supplement at a future date. Nan Cabell was still working on this unachieved ambition to supplement the book when he died in 1977. Curiously, the colour image that sits underneath the text which I've just quoted from is labelled Theodore Petrovich and C, page 249. This usually illustrates a frustration of using Nan Cabell and Spencer's tome the many images included almost never align with their biographical listing, a maddening feature of the book and one which seems could have been avoided. If there was purpose behind Nankerville's crazy layout, it's not apparent to me after perusing the book on numerous occasions. Petrovich, the character being illustrated, is listed in the book as is said to have made a voyage to the Pacific. It seems an enigmatic image to commence the book with, Surely if one was asserting that the volume assembled was authoritative and compiled with scrupulous attention to detail and regard for historical fact, then the first image ought to be someone concrete and preferably well-known. Nan Cavell opts for somebody who might have voyaged to the Pacific and, assert, and inserts Petrovich. It seems he didn't know that the person depicted was most likely Count Fyodor Petrovich Litke, who was born in 1797 and died in 1882. <clears throat> he was a Russian navigator, geographer and Arctic explorer and looks very grand here in this image. <laughs> Litke voyaged around the world aboard the frigate Kamchatka between 1817 and 1819 with the objective to deliver supplies to the Kamchatka Peninsula. The voyage was documented in Around the World on the Kam Kamchatka, which describes the crew's encounters with native Kodiak people and the Sandwich Islanders who they encountered 40 years after Cook's fateful visit. So Nankerville's speculative inclusion of Petrovich was justified. He did indeed visit the Pacific. A risky manoeuvre, though, it could be argued. Generally, Nankerville seems to have had pretty good instincts when it came to acquiring material, speculating on the artist, draftsman, author's hand, and then finding out later the decision was correct. He was not always so successful in his attributions, though. Sitting opposite the listing for Petrovich in the book are these images of Sir Giuseppe Banks and Giacomo Cook, with explorers La Perouse and Anson below them. Again, this illustrates the curious layout of the volume, but also the richness of Nankerville's portrait collection, extending to rather risible Italian impressions of the famous Cook and Banks duo. Nankerville claimed he owned 80 portraits of James Cook in his collection, and this seems fairly close to the truth. 
He also acquired 32 portraits of Joseph Banks in 45 different versions, collecting up to five versions of the same print, sometimes with minimal differences between them. Acquiring portraits was truly an obsession uh, and one that played out over years. Did he remember how many he collected is the question you might be asking. Well, I'm not sure, but he must have tallied them up when he catalogued all the items for delivery to the National Library and realised, if not earlier, that he had many multiples in his collection. He was also known to swap items with uh, or give multiples uh, to his fellow collectors in the UK, Australia and in New Zealand. There is another interesting piece of Nankerville editing going on here. The colour print featuring Petrovich was originally printed with him facing the figure of Ein Marquesas in Solana aus Nukahiva, as seen here. The tattooed man from Nukahiva, which is featured as one of the page openings of the portraits book in the exhibition, <coughs> Nukahiva is the largest of the Marquesas Islands in French Polynesia. As an aside, it was visited by Robert Louis Stevenson on his first Pacific voyage on the Casco in 1888. Stevenson also features in the exhibition because of his Pacific exploration, visits to Sydney, his residence on Samoa and ultimately his burial there in 1894. And to stoke any latent Sydney-Melbourne rivalry that might be simmering in the audience today, Stevenson actually considered settling in Sydney but when, on one occasion, he was shown a, Melbourne of, uh, a map of Melbourne, he responded, when I think of Melbourne, I vomit. <laughs> <clears throat> Which is something perhaps the New South Wales tourism authorities would like to uh, explore in a future marketing campaign. To return briefly to the man from Nukahiva, it's interesting to note that Nankerville and Spence did not make the clear connection between Petrovich and his tattooed companion and that he definitely did visit the Pacific. It does seem a capricious way to introduce such a large volume which they'd laboured over for so long. I think it probably points to Nankerville's eccentric bent and to his autodidacticism. I think he was very lucky to enlist the services of Sidney Spence to work with him so earnestly and who clearly had the staying power and dedication that was required over decades. <clears throat> Curiously, if you go to the listing for the man of Nukahiva, there are a number of portraits mentioned, but just above it is the listing for Nankerville's life partner, Mizuni Nuari, <clears throat> who he credits, born in Algeria, 1929 and that since 1942 he has been responsible for moving the whole RNK collection when needed and to our knowledge not one single item has been misplaced. Very many thanks Mizuni. It's a brief and rather dispassionate listing after more than 30 years of dedicated service and he doesn't use the portrait of him by Brian Neal as an illustration. Well here we can see the real Mizuni in one of Nankerville's photos rather staged photo, you might say. Um, and uh, we can see the Neil, the Brian Neil portrait of him, which I managed to track down in London last year. It seems Mazzuni suffered the longevity of the Portraits Book Project and Rex's other obsessions with good humour and outlived him by more than 30 years and inherited half of his very substantial estate. Um, well, now to conclude with a few stories included in the exhibition, which I think are illustrative of Nankerville's collecting interests and strengths. I should direct you to the catalogue for the exhibition. Do a Ron Radford here. Um, which outlines my new research and is available in the exhibition space. 
Rather than write labels for each item, I thought it was better to follow in some ways the portrait gallery's model here and to put the individual stories on the record in printed form for posterity and to increase enjoyment of the show. I hope you agree if you choose to buy a copy of it or donate towards a copy of it. <clears throat> the story of Pacific voyagers who travelled to England as part of the disruptive process of colonial expansion are included in great depth in Nankabel's collection and also in the exhibition and book. The compelling story of Giolo, William Dampier's so-called painted prince who was removed from the island of Miangas in the Philippines and exhibited as a wonder to show off his revelatory tattoos in London in 1691 and who sadly died of smallpox <coughs> is included in the show. In an era when tattooed skin abounds, this image of exotic Giolo may not raise too many eyebrows. However, his presence in 17th century London must have been revelatory. The English didn't even have a word for tattooing until James Cook returned from his first Pacific voyage and then later introduced them to the Polynesian Omai 80 years later, 80 years after Giolo. The just wonder of the age, Giolo's extensive body tattoos entranced the British who believed the intricate symbolic designs were painted or stained onto his skin and that, as the text further describes underneath it, nothing can wash it off or deface the beauty of it. The juice from the plant used in the tattoos could infallibly preserve human bodies from the deadly poison or hurt of any venomous creature, which is why the snakes are fleeing from him. <coughs> and they believed that only the royal family could be thus painted. Sadly, Giolo's captivating tattoos could not protect him from smallpox, which killed him, aged about 30, in Oxford in 1692. Giolo is imaged in a favourite Renaissance prose opposed by engraver John Savage and sends venomous serpents fleeing. He's described as graceful and well-proportioned in his limbs, extremely modest and civil, neat and cleanly, but his language is not understood. Neither can he speak English. We can only imagine what he made of encountering Dampier and then being pressed into service and displayed daily as a curiosity from June 1692, if his health will permit, as it said, by Thomas Hyde and John Pointer at the Blue Boar's Head Inn in Fleet Street. The other image seen here is from the wrapper of a set of playing cards, which I found looking in the British Museum's collection, probably also printed by John Savage, it's included really just to give an idea of how quickly the image of the exotic other found its way into um, popular, the, the public domain. This rare print of Giolo by Savage, acquired by Nan Cabell, is actually a playbill advertising his display in the Blue Boar's Head Inn. Giolo sits in the exhibition next to Omai, or more properly, Mai. While this, slightly, while this is slightly out of chronology, I wanted to show these two tattooed princes together both of them voyagers who enthralled the English. Polynesian voyager Mai because some, became something of a sensation during the almost two years he spent in London being looked after by Joseph Banks. Mai was a refugee from the power struggles on Raiatea and sailed willingly to England, aged 22, in September 1773. He travelled on Cook's second voyage, the adventure under Tobias Furneaux. Captivating society from King Tosh down... Mai's pronunciation of English names indeed endeared him to the English, as did his mimicry, his good matters, uh, his good matters, his good manners, and his tattoos. The word tattoo uh, from tatau, an English corruption of t a t a u tatau, 
into the language thanks to Cook's first Pacific voyage, but the first visual evidence of tattooing really came to the public eye through Mai. Toot, as Mai called Cook, was to return him to Huahine in August 1777. Mai hoped his newfound wealth and status would translate into the power to recover his father's stolen lands. He had a white stallion, armour and muskets, a jack-in-the-box, globes and maps. Instead, he died from a fever before he turned 30 and had his many possessions appropriated. At least he managed to return home, unlike Giolo. Mai's friend Opano, or Joseph Banks, wrote of him that he had so much natural politeness I never saw in any man wherever he goes he makes friends <coughs> and has not, I believe, as yet a foe. Unlike Joseph Banks, it might be added. Um, Mai became a celebrity and was created in verse and musical theatre, his exotic features and origins appealing greatly to many who read Rousseau and believed in the ideal of the noble savage. Mai's plans for revenge on Raiatea were not comprehended by the British who preferred to enjoy his company as he became one of them. Mai enjoyed a busy life. He mastered cards and chess, rode horses, shot game, was inoculated against smallpox, which saved him, unlike Giolo. He bathed in the sea, impressing the English with his swimming ability. He prepared a luncheon in a Polynesian earth oven and had his portrait taken by the portraitist of the moment, Sir Joshua Reynolds. It seems appropriate that Reynolds, who pioneered the imaging of the cult of celebrity, should capture Mai and that his full-length portrait exhibited to acclaim at the Royal Academy in 1776 should become his most famous and valuable work. Reynolds kept the oil of Mai, which it seems he had painted for his own interest until his death. His drawing of Mai is something of a rarity, as he didn't usually sketch his setters, and it, uh, not in pencil, and it is the penultimate study before he undertook the oil. Here beside it, the finished work, we can see one of a number of prints of Mai collected by Nan Cavell. This engraving by John Jacobi is obviously directly taken from Reynolds' acclaimed painting. Nan Cavell collected more than 20 portraits of Mai and numerous related manuscript and published accounts as well. I think the example of Mai eloquently illustrates the wealth of imagery Nankerville collected about voyages into the Pacific. The affecting story of Prince Libu is also included in the exhibition. This grouping of portraits embodies a fascinating story of colonial British voyaging and survival and of cultural exchange. Captain Wilson on the left led an adventurous life commanding British ships, most notably the Antelope, a packet ship of the East India Company, when it sailed for China in 1783, the young British portrait painter Arthur Devis was aboard. The antelope was wrecked during a storm on a reef near Oolong Island in Palau, Micronesia. The local pa paramount chow, uh, chief of Karor, known by the title Ibadul, misunderstood them as Abbot. Sorry. Misunderstood by the English as Abatul, heard of their predicament and sailed to meet them. Wilson sought to build a vessel to sail home and asked for Ibadil's protection. In doing so, and in unknowingly adhering to a local cultural protocol, Wilson secured the chief's benevolence and protection. This was further enhanced through the exchange of goods. In return, Ibadil later asked for armed support in battle against his enemies, which he was received. When it became time to return to England, 20-year-old Libu, Ibadul's adopted son, was taken across the seas to Rotherhithe in London by his guardian, Captain Wilson. 
Libu left behind his family to study and learn the ways of the world. He met, made friends, studied hard and charmed people. He met George Keat, who published the famous Voyage account, which is in the exhibition, and his daughter Georgiana drew him and this image was translated into print. Keat's account uh, is in the exhibition in different formats and I purposely chose uh, the Octavo and the Quarto editions to show the range of Nan Cavell's um, collecting and his strong interest in Voyage narratives and the visual output um, that ran parallel to them. Books and pamphlets were subsequently written about Libu, inspired in part by the fact that he too public, um, perished from smallpox with only, uh, after only five and a half months. These images, also collected by uh, Nankerville, further illustrate, uh, illustrate Libu's brief life in London and the profusion of publications around this sad tale. <clears throat> further evidence of the translation of images from this story is found in the collection as seen here. Here, Devis's original drawing of Ludi on the right, um, Ibidol's wife, which was completed on Koror Island, can be seen alongside the print worked up without his input by etcher Henry Kingsbury. The subtle changes in the image to create a more erotically charged portrait can be traced clearly here and it's the depth of the encounter material held that allows this kind of analysis and re-evaluation to occur. I will finish today with two slightly brighter stories. The first is that of the amazing survivor Betsy Broughton. All of, the voyages, of all the voyages in this exhibition, Betsy Broughton's story is perhaps the most affecting and unlikely. Nan Cavell's discovery of this portrait is almost as improbable. Betsy, the daughter of hard-working William de Broughton, the acting commissary general of New South Wales, and his wife Elizabeth, a former convict, was a tiny survivor of the infamous Boyd Massacre in Whangaroa, New Zealand in 1809. In this notorious incident, the ship's entire crew and passengers were slaughtered and most eaten, with the only exceptions being Betsy, Anne Morley and her infant, and Thomas Davis, a club-footed cabin boy aged 15. Davis was spared by the Maori due to his friendship with Tayara, also known as George, who was on the voyage from Sydney. A Whangaroa Maori chief's son, George was flogged and mistreated for an alleged theft on board and revenge for his loss of face ultimately precipitated the attack. Having lost her mother at the age of only two, Betsy lived with the Maori for three weeks. She barely survived on their unwholesome food before being freed in a very emaciated state by Captain Berry of the city of Edinburgh. Berry, a friend of Betsy's father, captured and ransomed two Maori chiefs to engineer her release. She then travelled eventually to Lima, Peru. Betsy was first taken care of by a local family, but eventually returned to Sydney by Rio de Janeiro, arriving in May 1812, two and a half years after first departing. <coughs> Her arrival, and I quote, to the great joy of her disconsolate father, led to this portrait, which Broughton commissioned from Richard Reed and dedicated, as he said, to Don Gaspar de Rico and the other Spanish gentlemen and ladies who nobly distinguished themselves by their humanity in their protection of Betsy. This image of a poised and rather preoccupied child was discovered by Nan Cabell in a Salisbury antique shop window in the early 1950s. One of the earliest extant portraits of a European created in Australia, Betsy was staring at the collector as he passed by. Later, he was astounded to find a letter inside the back of the frame from Betsy's father to her adopted family in Lima. 
One can only imagine their surprise when this poignant portrait arrived from across the Pacific. Somehow it made its way to London and became a great favourite in Nankerville's portrait collection. Betsy later married Charles Throsby and lived in Throsby Park, Moss Vale. She had 17 children and died at the age of uh, 84 in 1891. She's buried in Bong Bong Cemetery if you want to go and visit her. Um, <clears throat> I will finish with this story today, which is perhaps the most improbable. In the 21st century, it seems inconceivable that a celebrated case such as that surrounding the Titchborne claimant in 1871 could have made it to court yet alone occupy the attention of the public for months and then years. The case became the longest-running legal proceeding in Britain in the 19th century. It, it revolved around the missing heir to a fortune and the Titchborne baronetcy in Hampshire, England. Lady Titchborne advertised in 1863 for any information regarding her missing son, Roger, who had disappeared in 1854 after leaving Rio de Janeiro on a ship she offered a handsome reward and possibly a title and a fortune. The news of the opportunity eventually made its way to colonial Australia. A married, insolvent butcher's employee from Wagga Wagga who went by the name of Thomas Castro claimed to be Lady Titchborne's son and wrote in poor English in 1866 to his mother. He then travelled to England to settle his claim and to meet his family. Subsequently, his identity was revealed as Arthur Orton, a former butcher from Wapping in London who had been convicted of stealing horses in Australia. To say that the Titchborne claimant stretched credulity in inventing himself in opposition to the facts would be a massive understatement. In court, where his utterances should have been in congruence with the facts, it appears they were not. Yet it seems his grieving mother and some of the public at large didn't seem to mind a bit. Young Roger grew up in Paris and French was his first language. The claimant couldn't speak a word of French, nor could he remember where he had lived. In fact, he couldn't recall anything about his childhood at all. Roger had been a lanky youth. The claimant returned to England weighing 20 stone. The butcher from Wagga Wagga looked the part and his weight continued to balloon. Roger was educated in the classics and Euclidean geometry. Uh, <coughs> The claimant didn't know who Virgil was, nor did he know that algebra had anything to do with mathematics. His supposed mother's name was Lady Henriette Félicité. She was French and lived in Paris. Yet he originally wrote to her as Lady Hannah Francis. This shambolic and conniving figure, however, had won Lady Titchborne's heart against probity and the better judgment of her family, who recognised him for the imposter that he was. The Titchborne v Lushington case was ultimately brought to court by the family in 1871 after the mother's death and ten months later Orton's claim was rejected. A final straw and a rather damning piece of evidence was that Roger was tattooed on the forearm. The claimant was not. I think they might have worked that out earlier on in the proceedings. But um, <coughs> immediately Orton became the centre of a perjury trial which ran for another 188 days and ended with his conviction and imprisonment for 14 years. He remained recalcitrant until the end. The richly illustrated album in the exhibition is peppered with news clippings, detailed courtroom drawings that give a sense of the claimant's comportment and inventive prints and cartoons lampooning Orton from the popular press. The claimant is seen here above, standing in the witness box, his massive frame filling the scene with one thick arm drawing the eye down to a fidgeting hand. 
Recent research on the album strongly suggests that it was assembled by Philip Playdell Bouvery, or possibly one of his children, as one of the drawings is signed Bouvery, and a document in the volume has his banking firm's address on it. The drawings are amateurish but detailed and suggest the sketcher had time to study Autumn's and his behaviour during the lengthy case. Playdell Bouvery was linked to the Titchbourne family as a stepbrother by marriage to Lady Titchbourne and obviously had a personal interest in the case. These images that you can see here document the first trial brought by the family. It is interesting that Rex Nancavell, an expatriate Antipodean who audaciously invented himself from very little and who was prepared to lie creatively when he felt the need justified it, was so intrigued by the inventive Arthur Orton. The collector amassed a substantial collection of material covering the trial, and in the exhibition you can see just three items that give scope to both the extent of and the public interest in the case, but also Nankerville's obsession with it. The, the library has an exceptional selection of material in different formats documenting the remarkable Titchbourne case, and most of it has come as a result of the acquisition of Nankerville's collection. It is the density of material in Nankerville's collection about key figures like Arthur Orton or the celebrity pickpocket George Barrington or colonial strategizer and kidnapper Edward Gibbon Wakefield or James Cook and Joseph Banks or the celebrated missionary of Polynesia, the Reverend John Williams, for example, that enables him to document the famous and the infamous in great detail as part of the rich narrative of the discovery and settlement of the Pacific. <clears throat> I said that Nankiver was still working on his supplement to the portraits book when he died. I hope that the research I've accumulated in the catalogue for this exhibition forms in some small way a coda a fitting coda to Nankerville's years of collecting and documenting portraits that intrigued him. In a compressed space of time, I've managed to run up about 50 or so essays clarifying the history of just a fraction of the portraits in the collection and to show how they often relate to one another. There are so many more to investigate and I hope I can re reveal more about the portraits as well as other aspects of the Nankerville collection as time progresses. Thank you very much. Thank you.